Welcome to episode two of Creation Story, a non-religious podcast that explores the ways that creativity, motherhood, and vulnerability inform one another, with input from writing scholars and stories from four generations of women from the same family. In today's episode, titled Pretending in a Pandemic, we'll hear from the youngest generation of that family, specifically my daughter, Ella, who has taught me unexpected lessons during a tumultuous time. I'm recording this in July 2020. We are four months into a global pandemic, and there is no clear end in sight. Arguments rage over mask wearing and personal freedoms and whose lives matter. Racial disparities in the number of COVID cases are revealing deep inequities in our country's healthcare systems and in other institutions of power. On July 1st, my daughter Ella crosses into the age of five. We tie a large foil five balloon to the chain link fence in front of our house and her friends' families drive by and wave from their cars. One family even decorates their minivan with streamers and poster board and blasts Frozen songs out of a Bluetooth speaker while two friends leap out of the car in full costume. I watch my daughter dance with her friends in our front lawn, her on one side of the fence and them on the other, keeping a safe amount of distance. The scene strikes me as both beautiful and sad, like so many things are right now. Ella has gotten really good at blowing kisses and hugging the air to show her love for people. Frankly, so have I. On July 4th, I teach Ella how to draw a waving American flag and try to engage in a conversation about race as I spell out the words, Black Lives Matter, so that she can write them above our crayon-colored flags. We tape these to the street-facing windows of our house for all to see, though in my gut, this action feels too small. I want our stance to be visible to my African-American neighbors, and I hope to Ella, as she passes these drawings each time we enter our house. I have not yet shared with her the true connotations of Black Lives Matter, the police brutality, the murders, but have so far kept our discussions focused on the power of nonviolent protest and on love. Her love for our neighbor Isola, her friend Delina, Is this version of anti-racist discussion offering a sugar-coated version of reality? Yeah. Being a parent is a constant negotiation between lies and truths, fear and optimism, and you hope that you make the right choices more often than not. In discussions of what is called in our house the virus, I see my husband and I navigating this dance every day. When Ella asks how long the virus will last, we say that we don't know but then sometimes we provide unrealistically optimistic estimates, maybe partly to comfort our own anxious minds more than hers. I'm haunted by a July 21st Esquire article by writer and dad Dan Sinker called To Be a Parent Right Now is to Be a Liar. He writes, You tell your children not to worry while you stay up late, your bedroom lit by a never-ending doom scroll. You say you will keep them safe, though you know that every interaction with the outside world is a possible breach of this trust. And when they say that next year is when they'll see their friends again or go to school or drink a Slurpee, you just nod and say, that's right, buddy, next year for sure, even though you don't believe it yourself, not even for a moment. Our new reality might seem an odd time to reflect on the idea of play. But then again, quarantine for many parents of young kids means more play than we're used to. In our house, this means that the phrase, Can we pretend something now? is said as often as mommy or daddy. But the thing is, 
Pretending doesn't come easily to most of us above the age of 10. Kids excel at it, and they seem to operate on an almost telepathic wavelength when pretending with their friends. Ella has a pretend game she plays with her best friend at preschool, and it's just called golf ball. She has tried to explain it, and from what I gather, there is no golf ball involved. In fact, I don't think the game of golf figures in at all. Yet she and Damien love this game, can play it for hours, breaking into peals of laughter and silly phrases that they sing yell back and forth to one another, all part of the pretending. Unfortunately for Ella and other only children like her, the only people she's allowed to pretend with during quarantine are her mom and dad. So we've had to step up our pretending game. And I have to say, it does get easier when you practice every day, multiple times a day. It's a kind of literacy, really, pretending literacy. And like most kinds of literacy, it involves sending and receiving information. It becomes a sort of mindset, a way of viewing your everyday reality. Another boring walk or another dull hike in the woods, Ella's words, not mine, is suddenly filled with heroes and heroines, villains, obstacles, and drama, sometimes accompanied by Ella's original songs, which she sings at Adina Menzel volumes. Some of our neighbors have started to affectionately call her Adele, as in the British pop star. For those of you who listened to episode one, you'll know what I mean when I say that David Wilcox's words, Eleanor, sing for your mama, were a sort of prophecy for what our lives would become. Creative play, pretending which I guess is a sort of play cousin to lying, and song, have served as invaluable tools during this stressful time of COVID-19 and everything else. As I reflect on my current experiences as a parent, I'm also enrolled in a summer course that has me reading about feminist rhetoric, embodiment, and public writing. The juxtaposition of the articles I read with my lived reality of parenting 24-7 have led me to see unexpected connections between the two. First of all, the idea that play is not frivolous and is, in fact, an integral part of feminist writing projects. The act of pretending with Ella may actually be something more profound than one would think. In her article, Writing as Feminist Rhetorical Theory, scholar Laura A. Michiche describes the way feminist rhetorics, quote, foreground writing as a political imaginative act through which to re-envision reality. Feminists remind us that writing is not a transparent reproduction of what is. It is an active construction that reflects and refracts, creates and distorts, imagines and displaces, end quote. Michiche argues that play is an underexplored yet highly suggestive rhetorical and pedagogical element in feminist writing projects. She says, quote, It encourages dissonance, reminding us that writing is an imaginative world-building act, working against a generalized conception of play as frivolous and in excess of the literacy skills frequently deemed important in expository, analytical, and argument-based writing courses, end quote. For the first three months of quarantine, going on walks or hikes became a daily activity. While reality did begin to resemble Groundhog Day COVID-19 version, outdoor walks were the only activity that A, were still open and relatively safe, B, would keep Ella out of the house for long enough that the other parent could get a few hours of work done, and C, give Ella and her accompanying parent some exercise and fresh air. As much as I tried to add variety and enthusiasm to our hikes, I could see that Ella was quickly growing bored. One day, she sat down in the middle of the trail and refused to move one step further. I get it, I said. You wish we could do something else, like go to a playground, play with your friends. How could we make the hike more fun? 
Then, with an impish smile, she made a suggestion. Can we pretend? And so hiking, especially hiking with mom, evolved into something I now like to call hike-believe. Like make-believe, but hiking. Which amounts to an extended improv scene in which some combination of characters, usually Disney characters, try to accomplish a goal while a villain tries to pursue them, or stand in their way, or something like that. Emotions run high in these pretend sequences, but there's a kind of theater to it, a dramatic flair, and it's playful. Here's what this sounded like on June 4th. We were hiking in Maryland and had just come across a tree with two blazes on it. One green, one blue. Anna? Yes? Are you okay? I think I'm okay, Elsa. Look! Anna, what's that? I don't know. What do you think the green and the blue mean, Elsa? Here, look. It's the color of our dresses. You're right. Maybe it means that we are meant to walk on this path. And I have ice powers. Oh. And look, there's... A tiny X right there mm-hmm. that says no ice powers, no green ice powers. But but now there's a green check mark on the uh, blue thing. So it says I have blue magic and you don't have green magic. So what does this mean? I don't know. I guess. Oh, look, it's on the other side too. Hmm. What does this mean? I don't know. It's a mystery. Wait, wait, wait a second. Salamander, go up there again. Apparently, she also imagined a salamander. When the salamander goes up there and taps on the green thing, it says he blends in with both of the colors. Maybe that's the answer. So maybe you have magic, and you're starting to have magic just like me. What's that sound? Oh, I think it's a magical squirrel. Hike Believe is Ella and me creating a story that responds to and animates our surrounding environment. In this way, it enacts what Michichi refers to as world building. My second realization about play is that it can also be used for rhetorical aims. In other words, to persuade another person to do something. I'll be the first to admit that sometimes I manipulate a pretend scenario to make Ella do what I need her to do. It's become somewhat of an art. Example, we're deep into a pretend session in which Elsa and Anna are being chased by Hans. For those who don't know, he's the villain in Frozen. We approach an intersection, and because Ella does not appear to be stopping to look for traffic, I adapt the scene so that the road is now a river that she can only cross using the boat we create by holding hands. It's a bit of a stretch, I know. The third significant component of play is the way that it transforms time. Those of you who listened to episode one might remember Alexandria Peary's book, The Prolific Moment, which addresses the importance of writers maintaining a focus on the present moment using mindfulness practices such as meditation and focus on breath. When I get into pretending mode with Ella, I feel myself enacting that present focused writing with her. It may not look like the calm, quiet, meditative approach described by Peary. Wait, my powers are candy? You have, wait, instead of ice, your, your hands make candy now? Ice, come back. But his students were college age. <laughs> and the key elements are there. Curiosity, openness, an attitude of yes. Ella and I don't have mindfulness as our goal. If we have a goal at all, I think we're mostly just trying to make the boredom and monotony of quarantine easier to weather. In improv classes, you are told to operate in a mindset of yes and, rather than shutting down the ideas of your fellow improvers. 
Spending all this extra time with Ella has helped me relearn this skill and practice it on a daily basis, which actually helps me remain present in the moment with her rather than letting my mind drift into the past or our very uncertain future. Yes and is a mindset that is useful in parenting and in most aspects of life. If Ella says the road has cracks in it and that we're going to fall in, I talk about there being a river of chocolate at the bottom of those cracks. Our writing of this story is collaborative and unpredictable, all because of of yes and. Headed, Moana. You choose? You choose. Is I want to go to Motonui. Guess we need to sail the our way. Okay, we're there. We're there. Look at all these coconuts. There's always coconuts in Motonui. Oh, um, go, go, go off. I'll, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sail and then I'll be back. Okay. Ah! Wow, I almost fell down the hill. What? I almost fell down the hill. These moments of play and improvisation remind me of a quote I read from Jeffrey Sirk's article, Box Logic. Sirk writes about new media approaches to text and memory. He writes that as a writing instructor, his primary goal is, quote, to show my students how their compositional future is assured if they can take an art stance to the everyday, suffusing the materiality of daily life with an aesthetic, end quote. I think of the materiality of quarantine, the closed playgrounds, the isolation from friends and family, the constant hand sanitizer and alcohol wipes, the increasingly cluttered state of our house, and how the act of pretending with Ella does allow us to take a sort of art stance to the everyday amidst all of that. It's just so pretty back here. Yeah. Can we pretend something else? Sure. I see a dandelion down there. Do you want to grab that? Do you want? And yet, sometimes, reality does intervene into our creative art stance mindset. Here, let's keep our distance, okay? Or, sometimes Ella wants to be in the art stance mindset, but Mommy wants her phone back and isn't in a pretending mood. Alright, Ella, I need my phone now. Dun, 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 dun. No, one more! Okay, 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 okay! On the day Ella and I were pretending that there were cracks in the road leading to chocolate rivers, our walk intersected with a major road, Route 1, which is four lanes wide near our house. Ella was getting too close to the edge of the sidewalk, and as you'll hear, I quickly transform from playmate to protective mother again. The thing about creative play is that it is an approach to writing and to life that works really well some of the time, but it's true that the reality of our material existence also interrupts the playful, present-focused mindset, so that we don't, for example, let our five-year-old walk into four lanes of traffic. Paula Matthew, in her book Tactics of Hope, The Public Turn in English Composition, writes not of parenting but of public writing. In particular, her experiences of creating meaningful collaborative writing projects that are public in nature. 
While the Route 1 morning walk that Ella and I took that day was not likely the street that Matthew envisioned when she talks of writing that takes to the streets, I actually see our pretending as a sort of public writing, in a way, that demonstrates several of the ideas Matthew discusses in her book. Although Ella and I mainly compose our text for one another, our writing is also public, with other walkers and hikers serving as our involuntary audience. Several moments in Matthew's book resonate with the experience of parenting and pretending during a pandemic. First, in my experience, parenting is both tactical and hopeful, a combination that appears in the title of Matthew's book and also in the approach she espouses for public writing projects. She writes, quote, adopting a tactical orientation means letting go of comfortable claims of certainty and accepting the contingent and vexed nature of our actions. A tactical orientation needs to be grounded in hope, not cast in naive or passive terms, but hope as a critical active dialectical engagement between the insufficient present and possible alternative futures, a dialogue composed of many voices. Matthew discusses the danger of taking a strategic approach instead of a tactical approach. A strategic approach has wide-reaching, lofty goals such as cure homelessness. She argues instead for a tactical approach, which focuses on, quote, clever utilization of time, end quote, that focuses not on problems, but on projects conducted at very specific places. The project may not have a clear outcome, but is nevertheless a meaningful act of creation. The examples that Matthew discusses include a writing group that was organically formed by those affected by homelessness, and a theatrical fun project called Not Your Mama's Bus Tour. Both of these were tactical projects that increased conversations about homelessness, dispelled certain stereotypes, and increased connections between those affected by homelessness. But did they cure homelessness in Chicago? Did they expect to? Certainly not. Matthew discusses the idea of projects that keep an eye on a better future, while also recognizing that the project is an end in itself, a, quote, meaningful act of creation, to use her words. She cites Paul Loeb's book, Soul of a Citizen, which examines the mysterious and unpredictable role individuals play in changing the world. Loeb claims that by co-creating with other people, one can find, quote, a sense of connection and purpose, end quote, which, as silly as it may sound, I can relate to because of the co-creating I have done with Ella recently. I'm Pocahontas, and this is John Smith. I'm John Smith. Looking for gold. Yeah, and we're in a treasure of gold. Yes. Pocahontas told me there was a lot of gold in here. Mm Mm-hmm. And I was kind of right, because look around. (laughs) The world and our country may be falling apart. We may not know what kindergarten will look like in September, and we certainly are not going to cure the world's larger issues by playing pretend. But maintaining a playful approach toward our everyday reality is maybe one local example of Matthew's tactics of hope. Public writing in our house looks like make-believe, silly voices, improvised dances and songs, and Black Lives Matter signs drawn in crayon. In each of these instances, the project is a collaborative, meaningful act of creation. On some level, I think I'm also trying to provide a creative space where there's no fear, no virus. Sometimes the virus finds its way into our pretend, of course. We were out on a morning walk and passed by the blue playground that is closest to our house, which had been roped off with yellow caution tape for more than a month. Ella wanted me to take a photo of her in front of the playground with a big pouty lip on her face. I agreed. Soon afterwards, she began to sing an improvised song about her feelings as we continued the walk home. Here are a few clips from that five minute long opus. (laughs) 
playground cause I don't feel good. Good, 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 good. I don't feel good. And why is it just I can't clove the virus? Hey, hey. I don't see anybody there. Huh? Blue playground. Other places in Alexandria that I can go to, like our house, and we can play together. Or if mommy got the virus and I can't play with her. Or daddy, if he got the virus too. And how would the playground feel if I opened the gates up so everybody could go to the blue playground? But I can't. Why isn't this dumb? Now for the grand finale. The grand finale. Playground done! As I listen to this song, it fills me with so many different feelings. On one hand, I feel a mother's pride listening to her ability to make up a song like this on the spot and sing it at the top of her lungs with a fearlessness I hope she never loses. I also feel sad to hear her describe her inner emotions that she hadn't really expressed in spoken language before singing this. Overall, she had actually been weathering our new COVID-19 reality pretty well. She said she sort of missed her friends in her school, but all the extra time with us seemed to keep her happy. And yet, maybe it was the multimodal nature of singing that allowed her to access and express these deeper emotions of disappointment and fear. That moment when she talks about mommy and daddy getting the virus, and how much she wishes she could just play on the blue playground. Hearing her express these things makes me ache. When we're not pretending or singing, and I ask her directly how she feels about everything that's going on, it's a little hard to get a straight answer. And in comments like the one I'm about to share, I think back to Michiche's article when she talks about how feminist rhetorics often include intentional ambiguity and intentional interruptions as a component of their playfulness. 
My first attempt at interviewing Ella took place at the aforementioned Blue Playground on the first day that we allowed her to play on it again. Side note, she agreed to wear her mask the whole time and keep at least six feet away from the other kids. This was her first playground experience in three full months, and the first sound you hear is the noise she made as she swung on the swing set for the first time. The interview comes after. How do you feel about the playground being open again? I feel great. Tell me more. Well, I like the twisty swings. And I like the twisty slide. And I also like the... What's that? It's something I play with Daddy and I copy him all over the playground. It's so fun! How did it feel when we had to just walk by the blue playground all the time? When it, had the it was fun. It was fun? Even when it was closed? Mm-hmm. Um, yep. I guess that's right. <laughs> I guess you made the most of it, huh? Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think of all the hikes that we went on since the virus started? I love them. I like Mount Agamenticus. Oh, you liked Mount Agamenticus? Mm-hmm. That's the mostest one ever. Yeah, it's really Agamenticus. That's a really hard word to say, but you did a good Agamenticus. job. Agamenticus. <laughs> um, I know, okay. I agree that hikes... Listen, li- hey, stop, 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 stop. I do agree that. And, and, and listen to the Can I ask you another question? No. Okay. Ask me a question. Quick side note. Ella's preschool was going to reopen again a few days after this was recorded. The school is called Frog Pond. How do you feel about um, being able to see your Frog Pond friend again, friends again on Monday? Uh, I feel so good. Uh, what are you excited about? Damien! I know. It'll be f- so fun to be silly with Damien like you used to be able to do all the time. So how did you feel the first time we came and, and the ropes or the caution tape wasn't here? It was amazing. Okay, now Ella has a question for you. Okay. How does a poopy fall in love with a poopy? They kiss each other and hearts made of poop flow all over the place. Bye-bye. I tried again another day and got another playful, ambiguous response. There's also a lot of truth in it, though. So, Ella, how do you feel about all the changes that we've had to make because of the virus? Well, I like even wearing that stuff around. You like that? Yeah, but I just don't like wearing masks at the playground. I like going to the playground anyway. So that's been nice, being able to go to the playground again? Yeah. Anything else? Any other feelings that you have about? No, I think that's all good. That's it? Okay. Um, what does it feel like to have uh, your teachers wear, wear masks and your parents wear masks? And I, I got used to it. The hard part for me is sometimes I try to smile at people and they can't see it. You know? That's my hardness, too. That's your hardness, too? Yep. Yeah. I try to smile with my eyes, at least. You go like... Yeah. I kind of squint them. How do you feel about almost being in kindergarten? Um, I feel kind of nervous. 
Yeah. In other ways, I feel pretty good. Yeah, it's good. Is there anything else on your mind today? Well, I just saw a cardinal. A cardinal? He's sitting on that fence and then flew away. Oh, man. So pretty. I know, I really saw a um, red bird. That's so cool. Yeah. Oh, oh, I have a question. How was your birthday party, Even you know, the drive-by birthday party? It was pretty good. What did you think of all your friends driving by the house? That was fun. Yeah? What was your favorite part? When we got to eat the cupcakes. The cupcakes. <laughs> but the, the car. What were some things some of your friends did? Well, they, they decorated their car. Mm-hmm. And they danced to let it go. That was so fun. And, okay, I think we should end this. Okay. Thanks for talking with me. I recognize that Ella is probably not thinking of herself as a feminist rhetor, and that some of the ambiguity and interruption is likely just the result of the way a five-year-old's brain works. Even so, I know from experience that kids often have lessons to teach us that they themselves are not aware of. I struggle sometimes in my doctoral classes when terms such as feminist rhetorical theory or tactical hope become the focus of a book or an article. Sometimes these words feel so distant from anything that I personally understand or personally experience, but maybe they're actually closer than I realize. In Ella's playful, imaginative, present-focused world, could she be encapsulating a feminist response to larger power structures? I don't know about that. But I can say that pretending sometimes feels like the totally appropriate response to our current world. I released this episode into the public with some trepidation, not only because I'm new to podcasting and lack confidence in my editing abilities, but more so because I worry about sending my daughter's voice, her ideas, her songs into the world. Glenn and I don't share images of her face on social media for a range of reasons, including a fear that her pictures will end up in the wrong hands or that she will later in life resent us for representing her in a certain light without her knowing consent. I grappled with whether or not to include the recorded excerpts of her voice in this episode, and whether or not it was right to even write an episode about her in the first place. Ultimately, I became more comfortable with the idea once I reframed my vision of the intended audience. Instead of picturing an audience of writing scholars such as my professor, or friends and family, or strangers, I am picturing you, Ella, as I write, as I record and edit this episode. I write it with the image of you listening to it someday, on whatever technology exists at that point for listening to podcasts. Scholar Christina V. Cedillo, in her discussions of critical embodiment pedagogy, encourages writers to ask themselves, quote, what very real people do we imagine as we compose, lest our audience remain always and ever a fiction, end quote. Cedillo asks us to transform essays or writing into an invitational space to become a story that encourages others to share theirs so that we can gain a fuller appreciation of a situation or event, especially from perspectives that are ignored or erased. I hope this episode can live up to those words and invite Ella to reflect on her own experiences of this unique period in our lives and in history. I created this episode in part as an assignment for a class, but Ella, it was really meant to honor the experience of what it is to be your mother, to pretend with you, to play with you, to answer your questions, and to learn with you. I couldn't leave your voice out of this piece because your voice tells the story of this pandemic better than I could. As tired as I am, this quarantine has also been a gift. May this podcast episode serve as a souvenir of this time, and also the beginning of new conversations. 
Thanks everyone for coming along for this topsy-turvy ride. In the show notes for today's episode, you can find links to the articles I reference and a recording of the full-length version of the Blue Playground song, composed by Ella Sewell. If you enjoyed this episode of The Creation Story, you can find others like it at www.anchor, as in the thing that hangs from a boat, .fm slash the creation story. In our next episode, titled Those Who Came Before Us, I'll be considering what it means to be a writer with my special guest, Helen Gorenson, who is not only a published author of two books, but my mom. I look forward to sharing it with you. Bye, everyone. Can we pretend something now?